Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This probably doesn't come as a surprise. According to multiple media reports, including the Washington Post, Attorney General William Barr is expected to miss the House Democrats' April 2nd deadline to provide Congress special counsel Robert Mueller's full report of his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. As the Post reports, this delay will, quote, increase the likelihood that Democratic lawmakers will subpoena the Justice Department. And then this will all move into the courts. Now, over the last two years, some details from Mueller's investigation have come out about how Russian operatives influenced the 2016 election. So what have Congress and local officials been doing to safeguard elections, especially in the lead up to 2020? We examine that question with our guests today, where we live. Coming up, Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, a Democrat, will join us and we'll hear from a former Republican election official from Kentucky. Now, each state has decentralized elections. Does this help or hurt efforts to combat foreign actors? We'll find out. And later, we'll explore how some in Maine are trying to expand ranked choice voting. And we'll hear about efforts to bring this option to Connecticut. Now, you can join our conversation today, 860-275-7266. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm going to welcome our first guest to the show by phone. Jessica Hoosman is a reporter for Election Land. It's a ProPublica initiative that covers election administration issues in all 50 states. Jessica, welcome to our show. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, According to an NPR report, uh, the Mueller report could be, quote, the best playbook yet for how to bolster election security ahead of the 2020 election. Um, Instead of the full report, the public has received in Congress a summary from U.S. Attorney Barr. So, Jessica, what can we take away from his summary when we when we uh, look and focus on Russian interference in the election? You know, I (laughs) I, I, I don't. I, I hate to sound pessimistic, but I don't know that there is much that we can take away from it that we didn't already know. Um, you know, it, it's always obviously good to have another party saying that Russia did in fact interfere, because the administration has pushed back on that somewhat in the last several years. Um, but, but I think ultimately what we what we knew already from the Mueller report was was part of the the series of indictments um, and not so much from this four-page report. Uh, We've been hearing from President Trump uh, in news reports over the last few days saying uh, uh, no collusion, no obstruction. But again, uh, that summary from Attorney General Barr offered no conclusion on whether the president sought to obstruct justice uh, during the investigation. But when we're looking at election interference, what are some unanswered uh, questions? We know during the Mueller investigation, uh, uh, looking at uh, cybersecurity, there's still a lot that we don't know. Sure. And, you know, I think there is still a lot that we don't know. And I and I also think that beyond cybersecurity, a lot of what we don't know that, that materially did impact the election is the extent of the misinformation campaigns that the Russians sort of perpetrated in the United States. And I and I also think that we as as the public have not received a lot of great answers as to the smaller failures in cybersecurity that took place across the country in twenty sixteen. Um, and it's not clear to me if the Mueller report 
could get into things like that. Um, and, and I don't think that we will know until it's released in a more fulsome way. Some have called this investigation a distraction. Uh, What's your take on speaking with election officials who, of course, want to bolster security uh, locally, but they also, do they still believe that there's a lot more they need to know? Sure. You know, I think that in a lot of ways this investigation has been a distraction. I think that it has allowed, for example, the Trump administration to deny that Russia had any part in the election, which he did which Trump has done defensively, right? He, in order to protect himself against accusations of collusion, he went a step further and said, well, you know, it's not even obvious to me at all that Russia interfered in the election, despite his own administration um, and his own intelligence agencies saying otherwise. Um, And so I think now that the Mueller report is over and this cloud has been lifted from the Trump administration, it could be that we can engage pretty deeply with the idea that there was a hostile foreign power interfering with the United States election. Um, and, and perhaps, I, and I don't know what the, what the administration will do now, perhaps the administration will allow that to go forward. I mean, I think that election administration officials across the country are certainly frustrated that the federal government has done so little to help them with, um, you know, with bolstering their cybersecurity. There has Uh, For example, the only money that the federal government has released has been $380 million. That wasn't even new money. That was money left over from the Help America Vote Act. And $380 million spread across all 50 states is basically a drop in the bucket. And so while that money was dispersed, it's not enough. And I think that if we've been able to focus in directly on the idea that Russia had interfered in our elections and really threatened the United States cybersecurity, then perhaps we'd be a little bit farther along. Um, but the, 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 you know, this investigation has had the impact of politicizing even the idea that Russia has has interfered in our elections, and I think that's really held back progress. Mm. Um, We're going to be hearing from Connecticut Secretary of the State uh, coming up, as well as a former uh, Republican uh, Secretary of State from Kentucky, uh, to hear a little bit more about some of the details they were looking for and how they've been uh, trying to, uh, you know, safeguard elections locally, as well as, uh, uh, you know, appeasing the the voters uh, in their state about uh, the election process. But once that report, you know, when it does become uh, available to the public and to Congress, is there the possibility that uh, some of that information they're looking for regarding election security may even be redacted? You know, it's really hard for me to say. Um, I I, I think that that we, I think that we can probably assume that much of it will be. the, The Department of Homeland Security has not been very forthcoming in terms of the the threats that we faced in the 2016 and and, and even 2018 elections. Um, For example, we only had it confirmed that Illinois was, uh, that had their voter registration system interfered with because of the Mueller indictment of several Russians that were responsible for that. So it has not been other aspects of the federal government, but the more investigations and indictments that have given us more information about the threats that we faced in 2018 and 2016. And so if, you know, the Department of Justice sees fit to redact some of these things under Homeland Security, I think that there's certainly precedent for that. It would concern me um, that that we may not know some of these things. I, I think that, you know, this is mitigated by the fact that 
the Department of Homeland Security has a closer working relationship now with states than it ever has, um, which has been a, a source of tremendous progress in the last couple of years. And so even if the public may not be aware of some of these threats, I think that there's a more direct possibility that state-level administrators are aware of some of these threats, and the Department of Homeland Security should be given credit for that. Jessica Hoosman is a reporter for Election Land. It's a ProPublica initiative that covers election administration issues in all 50 states. She's going to stay with us here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to hear from election officials from Connecticut and Kentucky. What information do they want to see from the Mueller report to help with election security? We're going to find out. And you can join us, too. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. For all that we don't know about the full investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller, at least there's awareness about Russian interference in the 2016 election. So what have election officials been doing to safeguard the process in the lead up to 2020? To help us answer that question, joining us now in studio is Denise Merrill, the Democratic Connecticut Secretary of the State. Denise, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And to get a different perspective, Trey Grayson joins us by phone. He's the former Republican Secretary of State for Kentucky. Trey, welcome to where we live. Thanks. Glad to be with you. Also with us uh, on the phone as well, Jessica Hoosman, reporter for Election Land, a ProPublica initiative that covers election administration issues. We heard from Jessica uh, earlier. So I'll start with uh, you first, uh, Secretary of the State uh, Merrill. Uh, when we think about the summary from Attorney General Barr um, and uh, the questions that remain about uh, Russian interference or just our country's election system as a whole, what are your takeaways when you read that uh, letter uh, to Congress? And what does and doesn't it tell us that you want to know? Well, this has been, needless to say, a big topic among secretaries of state nationally ever since the 2016 election when this started uh, emerging as an issue. Uh, And all of us have been working very hard to make sure that we are secure, at least in the kinds of things that we were hearing was going on. So since that time, um, elections have been declared to be a critical infrastructure of the United States. So that means that uh, we now have a connection with the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is helping all the states, you know, secure their voter registry. I'm, I'm really careful to always make sure we know that it is the voter registry that is the only thing that's truly cyber. But I think it goes well beyond the cybersecurity question. And now uh, we're left wondering um, what are the next steps uh, and what really happened. And because I've been part of this security discussion, I do know that it is an ongoing issue uh, and that um, there's plenty of evidence that there is a lot going on not only from Russia, but probably from other foreign and domestic actors. So all we can do is try to continue to assure the American public that a lot of what they were hearing just simply isn't true. And I think the campaign of disinformation we now know was extremely well-funded by Russia in 2016 and continues on. So uh, we will be vigilant. I have spent a lot of time on this program, as well as others, telling people exactly what happened or didn't happen. 
And, for example, on the cyber side, where there were all these, uh, as they call them, pings into our uh, voter registry 21 system, states, including Connecticut. 21 states. And it turns out maybe there were more. Uh, but none of them got in, you know, and I think that's important to emphasize that, you know, we are we have plenty of those uh, security measures, uh, cyber cleansing and all the things they do, uh, just like you would on your own home computer. So um, it'll it'll constantly be an issue. We know that. Uh, and we are preparing nationally as well as here in the state. Uh, Trey Grayson, again, former Republican Secretary of State for Kentucky. Uh, you see this investigation as a wake-up call for the country. Uh, and when we talk about the steps uh, to safeguard election security, um, tell us how uh, Kentucky uh, responded. So, yeah, Secretary Merrill made a lot of great points about um, you know about this report and, and some of the stuff she's been doing in, in Kentucky. We have a unique challenge that um, our Secretary of State and State Board of Elections um, over, oversees, but in a somewhat uh, decentralized manner, 120 counties that really run the elections in each of the counties in Kentucky. And so one of the things you've seen in Kentucky over the last couple of years, and you've seen this in Connecticut and all, and all other states, is really a focus on making sure that local election administrators understand the threats, um, understand the the, the potential dangers with clicking on links from emails that you don't know about, um, communicating proper um, uh, proper steps, uh, being accessible and transparent with the with the public, uh, because we have a big communication chain. And in Washington, the Department of uh, Homeland Security is now doing a better job of connecting with secretaries of state and state election directors, but that can't be where the conversation stops. It's got to keep working all the way down uh, to, to local election administrators if we're going to be successful in this effort. Uh, you mentioned the uh, many counties in Kentucky. So as uh, when you were Secretary of State for many years, um, getting that information down to counties, and then uh, how did the counties then disseminate that information uh, to the local registrars and others? Uh, I'm just curious if there were some gaps that you were worried about. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, th- this is one of the challenges, um, although there is a silver lining, which I'll get to in a second, with, with all of these steps and all of these actors. Uh, but you have 120 counties, and we would regularly meet with the county clerks, that's what positions called in Kentucky, to train them, remind them of regulations, uh, loop them into things that were going on, and, and that still takes place today. And then the counties then are responsible for training their own staffs, as well as the precinct officers. You've got uh, at least four precinct officers in every polling place, and, and those trainings take place before every election. Uh, so there's a lot of steps. There's a lot of individuals involved. I did mention or hint at a silver lining, which is if you're a bad actor and you want to um, really impact an election, all of these all of these steps do create opportunities to you know to to get in right. All it takes is one person clicking on a bad link. But that being said, um, all of these steps make it hard to do a big wholesale effort at changing votes, for example, uh, because of the, the, the decentralization. And even if a state's much more centralized, we've got 50 states plus DC. So the country, we have decentralized systems, um, different voter registration databases, different voting systems, uh, sometimes even within states. So the variety, in some respects, also helps us, uh, even though it, makes, uh, it does make prevention and training challenging. 
Uh, Jessica Huseman again is with us, reporter for Election Land, the ProPublica initiative uh, that uh, looks at election administration issues. Jessica, I wanted you to weigh in when you hear from uh, two different officials, and uh, you know, with decentralized elections, um, some of the um, the issues that may come up, or just the emphasis on training. Uh, is that enough uh, to mm-hmm. help uh, these, uh, you know, these uh, local officials so that they know not to click on on a bad link and where data could be compromised? You know, I, I feel like um, that people don't understand how how simple a lot of this training is. And I, I think that, you know, I talk to county election administrators every single day of the week. And it's only been in the last year that I've really heard that county election administrators are doing things like going through pretty extensive phishing training or implementing two-factor authentication in their email and voter registration system logins, which are actually huge steps towards preventing um, cybersecurity breaches. Um, I mean, of course, there are other things that we could be doing and that counties, I'm sure, would be doing if state and federal funding were available. But in absence of millions of dollars of funding, um, really excellent steps are the ones mentioned by um, by Trey. You know, I think that, that, that counties have come a long way in just being mindful of their own security protocols and how that they, how they can sort of affect elections in, in their area. This is where we live. Uh, we know the Mueller investigation is over, but now there's the fight to get the full Mueller report uh, to Congress. We're talking about the state of election security uh, in our country. With us in studio, Denise Merrill, Democratic Connecticut Secretary of the State. Uh, by phone, Trey Grayson, former Republican Secretary of State for Kentucky, and then Jessica Hoosman, a reporter for ProPublica. You can join us, too. Uh, what's your take? Uh, what do you want to know uh, that makes you feel secure about uh, casting your ballot? Or do you see other issues that um, someone like the Secretary of the State, Merrill, and her office uh, should be focused on, you can call us at 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Secretary uh, Merrill, you mentioned uh, the DHS uh, relationship when there were those pings on the 21 states, including Connecticut. Uh, There was a lot of criticism because DHS didn't tell the states for a long time. So now that this, this relationship has has uh, grown. Tell us, you know, a little bit more about um, how you're working together to make sure that uh, timely information is given to you and your counterparts in other states. Yes, it was kind of a shock to all of us uh, because we found out about this largely through a congressional hearing. And then when, uh, you know, the first question you naturally would ask as a secretary of state is, oh, were we one of the 21 states? And the answer was, well, we can't tell you because it's classified information, which I understand, honestly. But uh, we've come a long way. Uh, I actually am classified now. I can go to all these security briefings and have learned a lot about what actually happened, what still could happen. And, of course, I can't tell you. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, the relationship has come a long way, too. And and that's a a part of building trust with, with the DHS and between the states and the federal government. There's been a lot of wrangling over the last few years about the role of the federal government versus the states in elections. States feel very proprietary. They feel like this is our job, uh, you know, and particularly I think in some states that's really an issue where there's been criticism of states that bought um, what they call DRE machines, which don't have a paper trail. 
So uh, not here in Connecticut. We bought the machines, the tabulators, that is, that tabulate the votes. We bought the ones that have the paper ballot. And ironically, in this day and age, um, it turns out that gives people a lot of sense of security. They know that they marked the paper themselves and that we can trace it and audit the paper results. So I think particularly in some states where they purchased the DRE machines, which were, you know, um, you know, certified at the time and people were allowed to buy them with the federal money that we had. This was about 12 years ago now, uh, the HAVA grant, Help America Vote Act. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of wrangling back and forth about the role exactly of what the federal government now can do that, uh, you know, election is now critical infrastructure, that we have a role with the DHS. I think the DHS has, uh, has acted in good faith and we now have relationships with some of the people at DHS and it always helps if you have those personal relationships and, and there's been some trust built now, I think. Uh, so that's been helpful. Uh, Trey Grayson, again, uh, from Kentucky, uh, how do voters down there cast their ballot? And um, if you wanted to uh, also give us your take on how you've seen the DHS relationship evolve with your state. Yeah, it's, we have a mixture. Uh, as Secretary Merrill indicated, uh, we're one of those states that still does have some of those DRE or electronic voting systems. Uh, when I when I was Secretary of State, we were implementing the Help America Vote Act. And we added these machines because they were allegedly state-of-the-art and they provided accessibility to all voters so you could vote without assistance even if you were if you were blind, for example. And I remember in 2006 or 2007 um, finding out from some computer scientists about the vulnerability of these voting systems. And so I quickly changed my position publicly and said, we got to go vote on paper. We have to go you know, back to the future, if you will, <laughs> and vote on paper because it's something that we can always come back to. Uh, it also provides a great deterrence. But unfortunately, not all the counties in Kentucky have shifted. Some of this goes back to this decentralization. Um, some of it's financial. So we still have a few counties, including our second largest, that votes purely on electronic voting systems. Um, you know, And that's been something we've been working to change for the last 10 years. I know my successor has been working on that. Um, so we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But a few more counties are holding out. As far as the, the, the conversations with DHS, one of the things that was interesting is they thought they were communicating with the states at the beginning, you know, going back to the 2016 election, because they were communicating with the IT folks and the, the chief security officers for the state, because that was their that's what that was their people. And the challenge is they had all these silos. And so they might let the chief security officers for the states know about some of these penetrations, and they had security so they could have those conversations. But election administrators were left in the dark. And I think what happened is, as a country, we got a little bit uh, you know, complacent or, or didn't understand or appreciate that a nation state like Russia might want to put forth uh, a bunch of money and time and um, people power to try and do um, to try to mess with our elections. But I, I do remember in 2004 having people in the Secure um, Election Preparedness Center for the state. Uh, in the 04 election because there was a terrorist attack in Spain right before the election that influenced their election. So we were all concerned that something may happen in 04. Nothing happened. And then over time, we just kind of, I, th I think, didn't appreciate the, the vulnerabilities that we had. But the last two years have seen a big change. Uh, but we, we have more to do. Uh, Trey, uh, Jessica Hoosman mentioned earlier uh, this money that Congress allocated, but it's really just a, a drop in the bucket, right? How much How much should election officials be getting uh, to help uh, within uh, their particular states? 
Well, it, it is a challenge because we don't spend as a country, when you add it all up, what the feds contribute, what states and locals contribute, we don't spend enough money on something as important as protecting our democracy, uh, protecting our elections. And that $380 million was was nice. It's only the second time the federal government has given states any money when it comes to elections. And one of the challenges, and Secretary Merrill alluded to this, is this philosophical disagreement on the role of the federal government vis-a-vis the states and locals. And traditionally, we've let states and locals have more control. The price of that is that we don't financially support them, um, except uh, you know in these two these two situations. A lot of Republicans tend to fall into that category of you know leave us alone, um, we'll be just fine. But what's been interesting to me is, and I and as a Republican and um, I now think that the Fed ought to get Fed ought to get more involved in this space because it's a national security threat to our country, and that's the time when, um, to me, you, you do something different. Uh, Freedom Works, a libertarian right of center group, they support this as well. So you're starting to see more people on the right coming around to the fact that the Feds are going to have to play more of a role. Where this dispute is is okay with money comes strings, and what are the strings that the, you know the Feds are going to mandate? for the money. Um, and the end result is no additional money other than the $380 million. Um, and that was one-time money. So so what do you spend it on when you're in, in office? Do you buy capital things? Do you hire consultants? You can do training, but then you run out of the, fund the money. So it's a challenge. We have to figure out a better continued source of funding, uh, either from the federal government or the states and locals are going to have to contribute more because it just costs more to secure our elections. We're talking about election security here on Where We Live. What's your take? Uh, what role do you think the federal government should play? Uh, my guest today, Trey Grayson, former Republican Secretary of State for Kentucky, in studio with us, Denise Merrill, Democratic Connecticut Secretary of the State. Before I go back to ProPublica reporter uh, Jessica Hoosman, uh, Secretary Merrill, uh, remind us the, what the money that Connecticut got from the $380 million congressional allocation. How was that spent? What did you do? Uh, we are in the process of spending it right now. We got about $5 million. And just as Trey said, uh, we're spending it on training. Uh, We're doing actually uh, what they call a virtual desktop, which means we'll be able to see uh, if if a local registrar or clerk is opening a phishing email, for example. So this is a, a new process that's going to be helpful, I think. But as he said, and and interestingly, I guess we're buying some um, equipment, you know, some extra tabulators in case the ones we're using start breaking down because they are a decade old. Uh, even though, as I say, they're basically scanners uh, and they're they're doing fine, but you know they're going to age out, and so. That's a big looming problem, I think, for most states because it would be a much more significant cost, you know, probably in the 30 or 40 million range. And that state uh, right now, the state certainly doesn't envision putting that money forward for these uh, tabulators. Uh, Jessica Hoosman, uh, we were hearing from uh, both uh, Secretary Merrill and Mr. Grayson about this evolving uh, relationship uh, between states and DHS and what should be the federal role. Uh, you've reported on the Election Assistance Commission. And uh, tell us about this commission, what their role should be, and, and have they been missing in action? Uh, you know, they have a really interesting role in the federal government. They are the only federal agency that is tasked explicitly with assisting and advising local election administrators. Um, they are um, you know, run by four commissioners, two from each party. It is rare that they have all four, though they very recently do have all four. Um, 
and and I have written before about how they've sort of abdicated their role in terms of election cybersecurity. You know, until very recently, one of the commissioners who is actually now serving as the chair was publicly denying that Russia had interfered in the election at all and had actually written a blog post that was hosted on the EAC website calling it a propaganda perpetrated on the American public. She has recently retracted that in a op-ed that she published with the Washington Times, uh, but not until only a few weeks ago. And in the two years that election administrators needed assistance pushing forward after the 2016 election, um, I think it's the sort of widely held belief of a lot of election administrators that the EAC was a bit absent. Um, and in their um, in their absence, DHS really rose to the occasion. But there's an argument to be made that DHS is not set up to help states in this manner and that the advisory agency that should be guiding this process is the EAC. Um, but they've sort of abdicated that responsibility. I will be interested to see what they now do, given that they have four commissioners. Um, but, but so far... Um, you know, they, they've issued their second round of voting machine certifications or put those out for public comment, um, and that's a huge step. They've been sort of sitting on that for, for quite a while. Um, but, but we'll see if, if they sort of pick up this baton and run with it now that they have a full quorum. Uh, Trey Grayson, uh, what role do you think of the Election Assistance Commission should play to help uh, states like yours in Kentucky? Well, the, the EAC is, uh, it's been a, con- I guess, controversial, for lack of a better term, body since its formation in the Help America Vote Act. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned that the feds have only given money a couple of times, and it was really all part of the same authorized um, expenditure as part of the Help America Vote Act. And out of, out of that act created the Election Assistance Commission. Some Some folks would like to see a more robust body that could do uh, regulation and have some, you know, have some real power. But the EAC was set up with that A as assistance, as its middle name, as its charge, and to, to assist. And so, um, you know, when when 2016 election happened, it only had two members. Uh, it often had been the target of being zeroed out in the budget. Uh, the Secretary of State's Association nationally, for many years, Secretary Merrill May, I don't know where the current status of this resolution is. I think it's actually getting ready to expire. Um, has has called for its um, to be taken be getting rid of because Help America Vote Act had been implemented and that had fulfilled its role. Um, but Jessica's right. It, it didn't play a very helpful role, an assistive role, if you will, mm-hmm. in this. And um, now, though, I do think there's consensus that the EAC has value and can play an important role. And so uh, my hope is that um, with its full contingent of commissioners, that it will play a, a role in, um, um, in helping states and locals battle the cybersecurity cyber challenge. Uh, I think it's time is now, in some respect, uh, that if maybe we were had some questions about it before, about whether it's need or it's efficacy, mm-hmm. uh, we need it now. We got a tweet from a listener, Stephen. Uh, he writes, I believe the actual process of voting is sound, but could be improved, such as Election Day as a federal holiday, early no-excuse voting, and and or multiple day national elections. He says it's the way in which political campaigns are financed and influenced that is inherently broken. So on that note, uh, Secretary Merrill, uh, you know, you have uh, several legislative proposals uh, to uh, address some of what Stephen has uh, noted, uh, including uh, with uh, early voting. Um, So I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that as well as election security and even how we're designing our ballots. That became an issue this past election here in Connecticut. 
Yes, that's correct. Uh, I can tell that listeners from Connecticut because most states already have <laughs> some of those things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Kentucky is one of them, but I know West Virginia uh, uh, Election Day is a holiday, I think, for state elections at least. Um, and yes, there are several proposals out there to make uh, it a state holiday, and there was a proposal in Congress to make it a federal holiday. I think it's a great idea. We already encourage schools to close because of security concerns. So that would mean, you know, at least we wouldn't have to worry about that anymore. That would be taken care of. And lots of people can't vote on a Tuesday, which is why I would like to see Connecticut join the other 40 states that already have some form of early voting. We are one of the more restrictive states, which is surprising in a way because I think we're very progressive in other ways. Uh, But in our state constitution, it says we can only vote on Tuesday and that we have to have an excuse, and a list of excuses are right in our state constitution to get an absentee ballot. This is not true in most of the rest of the country. Trey, how do you do it down in Kentucky? Uh, We're actually pretty similar to Connecticut. The only difference is it's not in our constitution, so uh, changing it's a little bit easier. Uh, It's something I advocated for, not necessarily the holiday, but the early voting without an excuse is something I support. Um, I mean, the reality is in a lot of Kentucky, there's, (laughs) there's no early voting police. And so a lot of people just do it anyway, and but they're forced to check a box that's not true, uh, that they're going to be out of the county on Election Day, for example. Uh, so early voting is something that we should do. Um, the, the biggest argument I've heard that I think was valid was a cost issue, that the, the locals didn't want to have this as a mandate without getting extra assistance from the state. And that's reasonable. The state should step up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and help fund early voting. Uh, secretary Merrill, this has come up uh, many years uh, since you've been Secretary of the State. Uh, this latest early voting bill has passed out of committee? Yes, it has. And it's headed to the floor, and I think it will pass, but it's a long haul to get a constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, cost has been, you know, the thing I hear here as well. But my proposal would be when we actually implement this, you don't have to open all the polling places. You do it like Massachusetts and many other places where you would just vote on other days, but only at town hall, which is already open, for example. So I think there could be ways to uh, alleviate the cost issue. Um, The election security proposals, uh, the cybersecurity position, could you tell us a little bit about that and even how uh, memory cards are audited? Is that part of the the proposal that you have? Yes. uh, We we do audit uh, our memory cards, but it's not required at this point. So the memory cards are the little chips, basically, that are in each tabulator and that contain the information about the ballot. And so uh, for years, we have encouraged our um, registrars to send the um, cards into uh, our Yukon Voting Center. We're lucky in Connecticut. We have this Yukon Voting Center at the Computer Science Department at Yukon, and they do a lot of these sorts of tasks for us with the graduate students and others. So we want to require that now because there's been so much concern about the security. The only thing that possibly could be vulnerable would be these cards. And so if we send them to Yukon to check them both before and after, I think that'll be a good security measure. And then with the cybersecurity position, that's something that you have discussed before. Oh, yes. Uh, I asked for this last year. Just, you know, as we've been discussing, uh, the states should probably kick something in here. Uh, I've had a lot of I, I actually have reduced my staff significantly in the last few years because we've put a lot of services online. So I'm asking for one of those positions to be restored to um, to help us with cybersecurity, um, largely with the local local folks and the local, you know, we're even more decentralized than Kentucky, if you can imagine that, Trey. We have um, <laughs> no counties. 
uh, no county structure. So we have 169 little towns, mostly wow. small, and most of them have only one polling place and fewer than, I don't know, 5,000 people. So uh, we have a big training task and a big task to make sure that the towns have the appropriate infrastructure um, to support the voting system. We have towns that still don't have computers in their town hall at all. And so this has been a real challenge. <laughs> uh, we're going to need to wrap up soon, but uh, coming up, we're going to actually talk about ranked choice voting. There's a bill. You've introduced it to study this option. Can you briefly tell us about it and uh, your thoughts on, you know, could this be a possibility in our state? Yeah, this has taken off in a way I really could not have anticipated. But, uh, yes, we are going to study it. I'm intrigued. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, they've tried it in Maine. It came in through initiative. Um, and my colleague Matt Dunlop up there has done a little webinar about whether it really has fulfilled what people think it's going to do, which is give them more choices. And that's the bottom line. Um, in Connecticut, to do this, we'd have to make significant changes in both our ballot design, the way people get on the ballot, and that sort of thing. But, I mean, it is intriguing, and we're going to look at it and see what changes we'd have to make to be able to make that happen here. We're going to be hearing from Maine in just a couple of minutes, but I want to thank uh, Democratic Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill for joining us. Thanks again. My pleasure. Also, Trey Grayson was with us by phone. He's the former Republican Secretary of State for Kentucky. Trey, thank you. You're welcome. Also, Jessica Hoosman, reporter for Election Land, a Republican initiative that covers election administration issues in all 50 states. We're going to tweet out some links uh, to her stories at Where We Live and on, on our website, wmpr.org slash Where We Live. Jessica, thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As I mentioned, we're going to learn how ranked choice voting has been working in the state of Maine. And now there's a bill in that state to expand it possibly to presidential election. We'll hear about that in just a little bit and also efforts to bring ranked choice choice voting uh, to our state. Uh, You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Maine made headlines as the first state to permit ranked choice voting for certain state and congressional elections. As we just heard from Secretary of the State uh, Merrill here in Connecticut, there's a bill to study how to bring ranked choice voting to our state. Do you want to see that option here? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We wanted to know more about how it's been going in Maine. And also there's a bill to expand ranked choice voting to other elections. So joining us by phone now is Kevin Miller. He's a reporter for the Portland Press Herald. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So just remind us, I know we don't have a lot of time, uh, Maine uh, has ranked choice voting uh, for which uh, elections? Right now we have ranked choice votings for uh, the gubernatorial and the legislative races and congressional races during the primaries. But once you get to the general election, it's only for federal uh, uh, federal races, so our, our House and Senate races. And so why, why did it uh, turn out that way? Is it based on what's happening with what your Constitution says? Yes, exactly. So when, when the Ranked Choice Voting Initiative started in Maine, they wanted it to apply to all races during both the primary and the general election. But it turns out that Maine's Constitution is fairly specific, and it says that um, for the governor's race and the legislative races, uh, those races have to be decided by a plurality. 
of voters in the general election. And <clears throat> ranked choice voting uses a majority. So the, the, our state's highest court ruled or uh, said in an advisory opinion that that means that ranked choice voting under the Constitution right now does not really apply to the general election for the governor's race. Uh, meanwhile, there is a bill to expand it to presidential elections. Does that have any legs? Um, that it's getting some interesting discussion. There are some challenges to do to do that, and our Secretary of State's office um, kind of laid out some of those challenges uh, logistically, paperwork-wise, the timing of it. So it's not clear that's going to go forward uh, for right now. And so uh, just a quick primer for us, since we don't have ranked choice here, remind us how it works exactly. Sure. Well, ranked choice, the whole idea behind it is basically, at least according to proponents, is to give voters more options. So when a voter goes into the voting booth, if you have a race that has uh, three or more candidates, they'll see on their ballot sheet, they'll be able to rank their, the candidates in order. So this is the candidate I want first, then second, then third. They're not required to do that, but they have that option. Um, the way ranked choice voting works is if no candidate gets 50% or more of the vote on the first tally, then those, those subsequent rankings come into play. And what happens is all the ballots are loaded into a big computer system, and the computer system will go through, and they basically eliminate candidates from the bottom up. And if, when those candidates are eliminated, whoever the voters who supported those candidates as their first choice, their second choice will now come into play. And those votes will be added to other candidates. And this process continues kind of from the bottom up until you get one candidate ends up with more than 50% of the vote. Uh, the main voters wanted this option. Uh, are they happy with it so far? Is it mainly a concern from particular parties? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a partisan issue, but it's interesting. We, we've actually had two separate votes now on ranked choice voting. Um, it was a ballot, a ballot initiative back in November 2016 that passed the first time, and that passed with about 52% of the vote. Um, the following year, the legislature came back and tried to delay the implementation of ranked choice voting. So there was a people's veto campaign that was launched. So in June of last year, the people, uh, the voters of the state actually voted again, and this time around it passed with 54%. So it's still controversially, you, it is a partisan divide. Republicans are more likely to oppose it at this point. But you know, based on the fact that Maine voters statewide have endorsed it twice now, I'd say folks seem to be pretty happy with it. Kevin Miller's reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. Uh, he's on the phone uh, letting us know how ranked choice uh, has been going in the state of Maine, as well as a bill to expand it to presidential elections. As I mentioned, there are efforts to bring ranked choice voting to the state of Connecticut. Uh, to, to update us on that um, is, uh, Kev, uh, oh, sorry, I'm getting the names confused, Jonathan Perlow, who's calling from a void, voter choice uh, Connecticut. Uh, you're calling from Greenwich, actually. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy, for taking my call and uh, covering this really interesting topic. So tell us why, from your perspective, why should uh, ranked choice voting come to our state? Well, we believe it produces better election outcomes that really reflect what the majority of voters um, feel is the best candidate. And so it can eliminate a couple of current problems. One is the a spoiler candidate problem, and we had that with the potentially had that with the gubernatorial election last fall, where there were people who preferred Oz Griebel to uh, both the Democratic and Republican candidates. But they sort of felt if they voted for him, that might be throwing their vote away because they might end up electing either Lamont or Stefanowski, which which they may not have actually wanted that as their second choice. Um, so that's one example. 
Um, another one is vote splitting, where you have a lot of candidates running, such as we had in the Republican primary in 2016, and we'll definitely have in the Democratic primary in 2020. And so no one candidate um, gets a majority of votes. And what can end up happening is is one candidate who is really not preferred by the majority ends up winning. Um, There was a very interesting example just a couple weeks ago in Fall River, Mass., where there was a recall election for their mayor, and 60% of the voters wanted to toss him out of office. But on that same ballot, they were voting for who was going to replace him. And he was one of the five candidates that was on the ballot to replace potentially himself. And indeed, that's what happened. But only 39% of the voters picked him and about 60% split their votes among the other four candidates. And so you can imagine that the current mayor would not have been the second choice of those other people. So ranked choice voting could have prevented that problem. Uh, And then the third one, is it just reduces negative campaigning because it's in candidates' interests to, if they're not somebody's first choice, to be at least their second choice. So you know they're less likely to attack another candidate and alienate that candidate's first choice voters. Mm-hmm. You think it has a lot of benefits. Uh, Jonathan, we heard from uh, Kevin uh, out of Maine about uh, what the Maine Constitution allows uh, versus plurality versus majority with particular elections. Is that something that can come up here in the state of Connecticut with our Constitution? Well, it's possible, and that's why we've been advocating for the, the bill that the Secretary of State just mentioned, which is really a study bill, and it's in the General Administration Elections Committee, and it's going to be voted on potentially tomorrow or maybe Monday. And it's really to do a study on ranked choice voting and how it would be implemented in Connecticut, what changes might be required. And as the secretary mentioned, there's, there's concerns about ballot um, design. So there are, there are a lot of ballot questions, and that's why we just want the legislature to pass a bill to study ranked choice voting and see how it would apply uh, there, there has been some pushback. Uh, some Connecticut residents don't like this idea. I'm just going to quote from a, a letter to the Hartford Current. Uh, Carol from Middletown uh, writes that she's against ranked choice voting. Uh, one of the reasons, she says, it seems so complicated. Why would we have to rank candidates? What if there are three candidates and we only have candidates, we only like candidates C? Why would we even have to rank candidates A and B if we dislike them and really don't want them to get elected? So how do you respond to a uh, sentiment from someone like Carol? That's a good question. Um, The thing with ranked choice voting ballots is you don't have to rank all the candidates. If you just want to pick one candidate, you're welcome to do so. And just as you vote today, you pick one candidate and that's it. But if you want to rank the other candidates and essentially express your second and third choice, you're allowed to do that. Um, And one of the other concerns that we've heard expressed, which which is a reasonable one without knowing the details, is that it's going to be really complicated um, but there are studies that show uh, that um, voters understand how to use ranked choice voting. It's been used for um, at least 10 years in a number of different cities. Um, and so not only do voters understand how to use it, but they actually do take advantage of the opportunity to rank more than one candidate. And so quite a few people, something like 70 or 80 percent, will actually make that choice. Well, Jonathan Perlow, again, is calling from Greenwich. He's with Voter Choice Connecticut. Jonathan, thank you for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lucy. appreciate the time. I wanted to go back to Kevin Miller. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I just wanted to pick up on uh, the question of confusion. Uh, in Maine, have voters been confused when the ballot was in front of them? 
Well, I wouldn't say there's been widespread confusion at all. Um, you know, certainly on the first time that it was used, some voters needed a little assistance in, in fi- figuring out the how to fill out the ballot. Um, that was one issue that came up um, during our congressional race uh, for one uh, one of the congressional seats up here last November, where this actually did come down to ranked rank choice voting, and the uh, incumbent who lost after the ranked choice process filed uh, court challenges, and they kept on insisting that there was there was mass confusion, and and really we we checked in with clerks throughout the state, and never encountered any mass confusion. I think. It, it's fairly simple when you look at the ballot to, to figure it out. And again, as, a, as Jonathan said, there's not a requirement that someone uses ranked choice voting. So, um, yeah, we just didn't encounter the, the confusion that, that lots of folks predicted was going to happen. But yeah. certainly it took a little bit of an education. And there are people there at the polls to help voters. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and all your your local you know, election clerks, they're, they're always willing to, to help people walk through the, the ballot. Well, Kevin Miller, again, is reporter for the Portland Press-Herald, joining us by phone. Thanks, Kevin, for your perspective. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. Uh, Thanks to uh, our interns uh, here at WNPR uh, for helping with the call screening. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show at WNPR.org slash where we live. Coming up tomorrow, when you turn on the tap for a shower or to get a drink, do you think about where your water comes from? Tomorrow, we're going to take a look at the state of water in our country. We're also going to hear about changes at the federal EPA that could affect what waterways are protected from pollution. We hope you join us for that conversation. That's tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.